Okay. Uh, hello and welcome to the Barcast. I'm your host, Nick Barr, uh, for another special episode of Cards, The Power of Cards. This is episode one. Um, the previous episode was a prototype episode, episode zero. Uh, and I can't, I can't imagine a better guest um, for, for this episode. David Cole is um, a Magic the Gathering fan. You're the person who introduced me to Reigns, the oh. iOS card game. You um, just tweeted about some pretty interesting whiteboard card prototype that you're doing with your kids. And your, uh, your workplace is a game editor that's card-based. So welcome, David. Thank you. I'm so excited to be on cards. Um, do you ever listen to On Being with Krista Tippett? Yeah, um, I haven't, at least recently, uh, but I've listened to a number of fantastic episodes. I was just thinking about her and, you know, she always asks her guests the same question of like sort of an original spiritual experience in childhood, something like that. What right. was your, what was your like spiritual card awakening in childhood? Cards. Um I think it has to be Magic the Gathering. Uh, my mom played Magic the Gathering with her friends. Yeah, she was a cool mom, you know. Um, uh, you know, I live in Silicon Valley Bay Area, and so a lot of her friends were engineers, you know, software engineers working, you know, on tech. So uh, I think there was sort of like a nerdy uh, scene that my mom ran in, in general. So she had she was playing cards in like alpha beta era, um, and I think that's the moment where. There were cards that were precious that I wasn't allowed to touch, you know, cards that were valuable, uh, cards that were traded, cards that like people would come and show off. They'd like come to my, our house and be like, look what I got, you know? Um, and so the aura for around cards, I think really was cemented in Magic the Gathering. Um, my mom also was, you know, a sort of uh, pantheistic sort of neo-pagan. So tarot mm -hmm. was something that was uh, in the household as well. Um, but I think, uh, that I'm sure that influenced me, but I think Magic the Gathering was one that really kind of gave me that uh, the aura and the you know the sacredness of uh, of a card. It's funny. I'm thinking about my own experience with Magic, and the earliest memory I have of Magic, I think, is in the third grade. So I would have been pretty young. I guess that's like nine. Yeah. What was that around the same time for you earlier? That sounds right. Um, it is blurry, but it's around that time. Yeah. Uh, it, it blurs into middle school when I actually got more yeah, into it right. myself. Right? right. I mean, my earliest memory is sitting in Mrs. Burns class on the floor and actually similarly talking about Black Lotus, right? Uh, that's yeah. what it's called. Black. Like, so I think by that time, revised or third edition was pretty popular. And I, I guess yep, maybe yep. sort of an order of magnitude more available. Um, but there was still sort of like stories of Alpha. Maybe someone had a beta card at school. And so you just sort of knew that Black Lotus and maybe a couple of other cards were just worth an extraordinary sum of money. And I, I think it wasn't, you know, talking about the sacred for me, it wasn't like, I don't think I was thinking in that time, like, oh, I could be a thousand heir if only, it was more just like, right. some of these cards have enormous value. And even the Black Lotus sort of is a spiritual symbol. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah interesting. I was able to occasionally borrow my mom's cards, um, although she wouldn't be happy about it because I wouldn't treat them as well as she would. But I would roll into middle school with like alpha lands. Like maybe she might give me an alpha land that she didn't care about anymore. And so I'd be able to go like, uh, like everyone has third edition cards and here I am with like some alphas, you know, um, thinking I was like cool, but you know, it would be just a, you know, a plains or a mountain or something. So it wasn't 
it wasn't a black lotus certainly i think the other thing about those early magic days that i find interesting is reflecting on like the expansion packs or whatever they were called where like they were so i don't know how it's changed what or do you still play magic are you like up to date with magic no i completely fell off after some time in high school yeah i, I just like you know there was like the dark and uh yeah there was one that was sort of Arabian Nights themed. Do you remember what the name of that was? I think it was potentially literally just Arabian Nights. Um, the, but that's the that first wave of expansions are a lot of the cards that are burned into my mind from my mom's collection, like antiquities and uh, yeah, right. uh, things from that that period. And I have this I have this very like before and after Homelands. Like I feel like before Homelands, things were like yeah. very weird and they were yeah. like other and they had this energy to them. Like Arabian Nights, yeah, it's just like there's genies and 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 like the style and aesthetic was very specific and almost like from an ip perspective almost like unwisely different yeah and then homelands was extremely whack i actually doubled down on homelands for whatever reason like i had a minotaur deck yeah uh and i was like no no minotaurs are dope red blue and like all this stuff but like homelands did suck and then and then after that they all sucked i don't know and they, and they, they got samey in a way at least that was my experience of it yeah, I think um, for me, there was a mystery also with just the, there was a sense of world and place that I found in some of those older cards, like especially antiquities for me, mm-hmm. are images where like you could watch a motif spread across many cards and have a sense that there were these characters. Um, and I'm sure that's that's carried forward into the future, but um, there's like specific places and like characters and like, you know, contexts that I associate with that period that... Um, I think there's also an interesting aspect to that where there were a lot of cards that I felt repulsed by mm. or like I didn't like, or I felt like I like almost liked and I was bothered that I didn't like them all the way. Mm. And those cards would often sometimes be the cards that lodged further into my mind. Cause mm-hmm. I'd like, I wouldn't, maybe I'd like be playing them because they were good mechanically, like they were powerful, but I was bothered aesthetically by them or something. So they'd sort of, those ones would actually maybe stick in me more deeply than, than the cards that, uh, do you remember? Do you remember straightforwardly like cool? Now? Yeah, there were. Uh, there's like a set of cards. Um, do you know Amy Weber, the the illustrator Amy Weber? No. She did a lot of stuff in that period. I think she might have even been one of the original artists in in Alpha. Um, but she did a lot of cards where you'd have things like uh, mixes of abstraction and reality. So you'd have like abstract shapes, sort of like mingling with reality, like a like a um gonna butcher these like you know like a time wall or something like that and how do you represent a wall made out of time well you have to start to break into you know abstract shapes kind of merging with reality and I remember that kind of those kinds of images would sort of stick with me and kind of echo in my mind Um, and then another category would be like highly articulated muscles Mm. like often magic cards would have these like incredibly well defined you know muscular shapes on these like various like black cards, I feel like especially some of yeah. the demons would have these like Lots very, and... yeah, yeah, that bothered me for some reason. I, I mean, I think I actually talked about this with Matt on the last episode, but I, I posted I think a picture of Living Wall that definitely stands out to me. Absolutely, uh, I think there's like maybe a fetus and an, uh, a sack in this Living Wall. Yeah, it's I... just, yeah, and it's just it's like it's a lot of fucking trouble for like an 04 wall too like yeah. I, don't, I don't know if this is what you're talking about with that sort of mismatch but it's like some of these images and things have no business being at like nightmare yes. we'll talk about melissa benson in a second nightmare or like shivan dragon like 
dope illustrations, dope creatures. And there was sort of just like an appropriateness to them. And then you sort of had these odd ancillary things with either maybe odd mechanisms or just mechanisms that like weren't that interesting. And yet, yeah, they sort of have this outsized impact. Absolutely. Or, or cards that you wanted to believe were good. And so you'd put them in your deck and you'd play them and you'd like try to bend your whole deck to support them and it just wouldn't pay off but you were committed to the like this guy looks like he should be kick-ass but (laughs) it's not happening somehow yeah i had a long poison counter phase although the poison counter art was really terrible but i I just liked the idea of sort of like leeching my opponent's life force and i don't think i want any game um yeah i mean the art on that era is just we were talking a little bit um before about Melissa Benson, who I think both you and I had like a, a, an affinity toward. And I, yeah. I just looked her up again. And I, she seems like she's still active. Her last blog post was like 2018 and she's doing commissions. And it was also just interesting, like you're reminded of these, I, I don't know any people like Melissa Benson. Like I don't know any professional illustrators who also like her interests are like neo-pagan, like yeah. um, Wicca. And like, it's not like she goes home and then like turns that part of her brain off. Like she's, this is her passion and she does this in a lot of different facets. It's just interesting to think about like the life of these illustrators. I think it was nice that, I mean, the illustrators were credited in really kind of large typeface. Um, So they they had their own, Anson Maddox, I think is the one who did Living Wall. And like, yeah, that's a name I still remember partially at least. Yeah, and there was a there was a heterogeneous aesthetic unlike a lot of other card games that you pick up and you can tell there's sort of one uniform look you would, you'd have a range of abstract to, to concrete. Um, do you remember the card? I think it was maybe stasis. I want to say it was a blue card and it was like a fully abstract painting or not fully abstract, but like very closely abstract. Um, and it was so, so abstract relative to the other magic cards that that would bother me. That was like one of the mm-hmm. things that would bother me about that card. It's, like it's too abstract, but I did appreciate the, the full range. Yeah. I do remember the card. I'll have to look up the artwork. Um, Okay, so there there was Magic the Gathering. Did you did you, have you have you in your youth made a card game? Do you remember like the first game that you created? Yeah. Um, well, we would make our own custom Magic cards. I think that was like the first entry wow. point into that. Would be yeah. to just like draw a Magic card on a piece of paper, you know, and cut it out and like put it into a sleeve to make it feel more real with the real right. card in the back. So you got the real Magic back, right? And then oh, try okay. to play with your own cards. Did you never do that? We never, I, I don't think we ever made any magic cards, which is interesting to think about like somewhere else, there's like this group of people who it doesn't even occur to them to make one. Yeah, no, it was like, it felt like a really natural thing to kind of imagine a dream card. And, you know, the way the little kid thinks about a dream card, it's like, oh, it'll be like a 40, 40 <laughs> with, you know, and all these like right. fantastic elements and it right. totally imbalanced and everything. Right. Um, but that's how you begin to learn these things about, you know, game design. And were you writing lore or like, did you have those italicized like little comments in your cards you were making up? Yeah, I think we weren't, we didn't end up creating entire worlds. I think that was beyond the scope of our ambition. I think a lot of the time it would be pet characters. I don't know if you had characters you created that you would just draw over and over and over again, because Mm -hmm. I had characters that I would like, you know, like be, be a potential superhero, like a Marvel character candidate you know, that I would draw in all sorts of places and just draw notebooks over and over. And, you know, that I'd make a magic card out of that character. So it'd often be like pulling in, you know, images or ideas or, or things we created, you know, from other media context. Would you, would you be willing to draw one? I have one in my mind that I could draw. Uh, I, 
I haven't uh, I haven't drawn it in a really long time, but I can try to give it a shot. If you're if you're up for it. I'll draw my little guy. I think I only this is have good one. audio, right? Oh yeah, really good. Let's see if I can conjure this. It's actually a little shocking how quickly I can conjure this. <laughs> Didn't realize. Do you draw regularly? No. Do you? I have spurts where I draw regularly. Andy Matushak uh, told me to watch the Double Fine Adventure documentary, the sort of the making of the game. And just, I've only in like the first few episodes, but just like watching him in his notebook, just being a total fucking kid. It was just so yeah. awesome. I was like, wow. Because you just you just get it. You're like, I know exactly the mode you're in. And I haven't, for me, I was like, I haven't been in that mode in like 20 something years. Absolutely. All right. We ready for the reveals? Let me go first. Because okay. I don't want to kind of like get crushed. Um, so this is uh, me circa third grade drawing. Yeah. Like, kind of like a frog magician prince. Um, and like stroke by stroke, it's, you know, it's probably what, like 20 strokes, but it's, it's a very specific sequence. It starts with right. an M kind of the widow speak M and then the circles and, and then kind of getting that hat behind his head. It's like a very important part of it. That, that was, that was it. I would, I probably drew him a thousand times or so. Yeah. There's a, you get into these like algorithms, right? I think the yeah. classic would be the S like the cool S. S. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Right. And it's sort of like, you learn this sort of rhythm that has a, a logic to it that you internalize and kind of repeat over and over all right so uh-oh uh -oh. in the background there we go oh i can, can yeah yeah oh very nice jester would be the character name so i think what you're seeing is the influence of spider-man and spawn mm -hmm. right so the kind of the cool eyes that that those share um and I also have always really liked high contrast black and white, something that is still true today in like a lot of my work. Um, so you get that in the character too. So um, you mentioned your mom kind of having tarot and stuff. Does tarot also feel open-ended from your experience of it? Like, could someone add cards to the tarot deck or does it feel very closed? And like, I'm just wondering like what makes a card system feel open versus closed? Yeah, no, tarot definitely feel, felt closed to me, but I'm not, I don't consider myself deep into tarot in any way. Um, I, I think I'm a, I appreciate it in theory and I appreciate a lot of the aesthetics of individual cards, but 
uh, as a system. It's not one I've, I think, gone into the depths of internalizing. Right. Um, I've flirted with making Enneagram versions of tarot cards because that is a mm-hmm. system that is kind of Baroque and interconnected in a way that would suit itself to a system like this. And I've, I think there's a good fit there, but um, I haven't finished any of those, those experiments. Uh, I, that was a, a tangent from your question though. No, I'm, I'm well, I, I mean, I want to get into that now, but I, I was just thinking about open and closed because, you know, you're someone who thought of magic as an open system and I'm someone, someone who thought right. of magic as a closed system. And there yeah. are probably some systems that are like uncontroversially closed and then some that are uncontroversially open. You know, like one of the easiest things you can do is have a deck with a few blanks on it, right? It's like, right. okay, I get it. I wonder what it what is the signal that it's like, this is a closed system. And I, I mean, Enneagram, I guess, is an example, which is it's like, I depend on some system map that is self-contained and like needs no yeah, further. Complete, right. Um, and Magic the Gathering, right? You're a course accustomed to sets coming out that expand right. the cards and also cards getting banned, like the Black Lotus, where you kind of have this sense of like, cards coming in and out of play um my like latest um new interest i guess is internal family systems that um uh also kind of feels like it it wants to have some cards um because it has so much to do with sort of working with parts and getting to know your parts and asking questions of your parts um and I don't know. On the one hand, maybe that's just like a worksheet, right? I mean, like the book that I'm reading yeah. kind of has a, a list of questions to complete and it would be much better if it was a worksheet with like a place you could draw it, like sort of a structured diary. And I can, I can see that form factor for it. Cards are also interesting. I mean, I think the little dirty secret of IFS and I think of therapy in general is like, there's, there's what, like 30 problems that people have. Right. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm terrified of getting abandoned. So I'll be the first to abandon. I'm terrified of causing conflict. So I'll do whatever it takes not to have it, including, you know, like there can't be more than 50. I I don't know. Like that is the thing that I think has shocked me about Enneagram uh, is that that sense that it keeps explaining more and more and more, the more I spend time with it that I'm like shocked by how much you can compress into such a small number of situations. Right, right. Um, it is the thing that I think all the people that I know that have gotten into it, I think often say that exact same thing about how much they can't believe just knowing the one through nine type they have is how much that explains about themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is, there does seem to be a sort of, uh, supr- at least it's a surprising amount of compressibility relative to what we assume before yeah. exposing ourselves to these systems. Enneagram has some nice tricks too that like with the, the wings and the pointers, yeah, like it, right. it, it has some really good onboarding experience where like the onboarding experience is like you're a five or whatever, but then it like starts to expand in really interesting Definitely. ways. Um, yep. Whereas I just did something, have you heard of uh, this, this is now this is pretty wild. I don't, I don't mean to group it all together as if to say Enneagram is no more valid than something else, but here's something that's like, it's called uh Oh damn. I can't remember what it's called. Someone referred me to it. And, um, it's like completely just only based on your time and location of birth. So it's like purely astrological. Wow. And yeah. um, it produces this like map of you. And then the four types of people are like projectors, generators, manifestors, and then manifesting generators. And then maybe reflectors, which are like very rare. So five types. And um, th- does this ring a bell at all? It rings a bell, but I couldn't tell you what it is. 
Um, but is there a piece of like complex software that kind of projects out in, through time that is associated with this? The, or am there's, I just there's, there's like a there's a website that you can access that tells you, and then has many many upsells of like, you yeah, know, unlock this for twenty nine ninety nine. But then there's like a bunch of free YouTube videos where you could watch. So I've kind of done the free assessment. And sure. I'll find a link and I'll put it up when it's there. Not not that I'm endorsing it, but you know I I I like that stuff and um, it's a fine line, right? Of like having naming the truth and then also just like kind of swinging at things enough that there's something there for you. I think Enneagram starts to feel a little bit swingy for, for me. I haven't gone deep on it, but like I don't know how much I believe in the entire map. No, uh, definitely. Like, you know, I, being adjacent to a four, like I forget whether I'm a four or five, I'm somewhere in that area. But like the wings, the wings start to feel a little bit like swinging, you know, spray and pray. Yep. yep. And, and sometimes it works. Sometimes I'm like, oh, that kind of does make sense. But then sometimes it sort of feels a little bit like covering its bases. I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree. I feel the same way about Enneagram. Um, and with all these systems, you have to hold them at a slight distance, right? Um, the question is whether looking at things this way produces interesting results or not, right? Um, yeah. Not whether it's the, the most accurate or the most systematic. Yeah. I, I find myself falling into this. I, I'm catching myself because before I was like, there's, there can only be so many things. And like, I, I have a distinct memory of having a difficult work relationship maybe five or six years ago and like blaming myself because I hadn't categorized the person properly, you know, like, yeah this is a collaborator who had I kind of been more steeped in personality, like I felt like I should have been able to vet that early. Sure. And I remember thinking in the moment, like there can only be five or six types. I think I, I thought there were much fewer. And I was like, I felt hopeful that at some point, like I would be enough of an expert just to do it. But lately I think I've swung more to the other. And then even though I think that there's a pretty small number of maybe like um, neuroses or sort of like, reaction chain patterns to kind of do a Ken, Ken McLeod thing. Like I I'm less confident than ever that I would be able to vet someone like when you're, when you're hiring or when you're thinking about work relationships, have you brought these things to bear and have they been useful for you? And, and if so, where do you stand on sort of the, like, no, I think there's like actually sort of structured ways to vet this versus like, man, people are complicated and you never fucking know. And just, you just, you, we, we won't know until you do it. Yeah, no, it's a really uh, important question, I think, especially if you do want to try to bring it into a work environment. There's a lot of risks, I think, with how people respond to systems like this. Um, I think using it in a hiring context is like not appropriate. I think it's basically irresponsible and like not even a, I don't think you could even realistically test in a way that would give you like reliable results. Um, my experience with Enneagram is that the people who resonate with it often have to be above some level of self-aware before they can really kind of work with right. the system. Uh, there's a resistance to kind of seeing yourself in a mirror as, as nakedly as uh, a system like that can demand of you. Um, and it's interesting to expose people to it for the first time because you do see a stranger responses and it, a, a not too uncommon responses. This seems so accurate that I hate it and I don't want anything to do with it. I did it in the same way that I think looking in a mirror too long can yeah. be just a repulsive experience, right? So um, I don't I don't think it's great to force people into something, a system like that that makes them feel that way, especially in a work, work context. Um, but I have used it extensively in, in, in a work context when there's a sense of we're all in on, we're all interested in this and we're all willing to talk about it in this context and we're not going to 
we're not going to let this leak too much, right? Um, and we probably there probably were cases where we leaked it too much, but um, you know, if, if there's a set of people who are really into those ideas, it can be a really uh, rich way to to try to work through issues. Um, but I think of it, yeah, I, like I said, I hold it at a distance. And uh, one way I think about the this in, in general when it comes to how much to take a concept seriously or a structure seriously is kind of, I use color as an analogy in my own head where, you know, what can you clearly say when red becomes orange? No. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that a word like red and a word like orange aren't useful? I mean, obviously that's, you know, those are useful words. Um, so words don't have to be, concepts don't have to be sort of like super clean divisions to become useful labels to start to look at things. And to, if you look at, you know, if you're looking at a, a shade of white, for example, you often have to start to say things like, oh, this is a cooler white or a warmer white, right? Um, and uh, and so you want to be able to invoke these uh, these concepts to actually capture some of the the ineffability of some of these things because you want to be able to to shift away. You say, oh, it's white, but it's shifted a little bit towards this. And so I think it's like you want to combine and recombine these things and to kind of gesture at, at, at something you know to be ineffable. Um, but I I think. I think without vocabulary and without frameworks, it can be hard to make distinctions that are fruitful. And it can be hard to even talk about. If you don't have a word red or you don't have or you don't have the word warm or the word cool and you're looking at a shade of white, it can actually be difficult to characterize why you prefer one white or another over another, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so I think of it more in, in that kind of lens. It's a lens to look through and kind of see, but you know, uh, it's never going to capture the full reality. I don't want to detour on this too much because I want to get to your whiteboarding prototype, but I guess this is a conversation I'm having with a lot of people. And I, like, I don't want this to get off the rails. If you, if it's getting off the rails, just say off the rails. But like, I talk to a lot of people who are miserable at startup organizations now. They're, you yeah. know, VPs of whatever. And their like job is almost entirely like um, HR and like, uh, like, uh, interpersonal and intrapersonal dynamics. Sure. And um, like uh, for a lot of people, it's like, that. it feels like that's taken over their job. Like, whereas maybe 10 years ago, it was like 20% that now it's maybe 90% that. Yep. And, um, you know, when you're talking about these kind of work environments for Enneagrams, like on the one hand, I'm like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, there was a way to kind of yes and this trend, right? Which is like, instead of like bringing your, you know, sure, bring your whole stuff to work. And we have like this system for understanding each other and like sort of guardrails, which is like, there's no bad types, right? But by understanding yeah. my own type and by understanding someone else's type, uh, we will achieve a lot more understanding and, and all that. So like, I can kind of imagine like energy going that way, right? And then I can also imagine that being a fucking disaster and like it will of bump course. into the same problem that almost any of this stuff does, which is like work is inherently a... Uh, psychic prison or, you know, whatever you want to yeah. describe it. it is not an enlightened society. And so um, there's a, there's a really strong ceiling to the value these things can have, because they're ultimately going to bump into sort of the leaky container that uh, houses them. Do you, do you have like a stance on that? I, I mean, you're kind of, you're kind of alluding to it of like, Hey, it has some value, but I guess I'm thinking about more contextualizing just sort of in this mega trend of just like what it means to be an employee these days and how much squishy stuff happens in those relationships. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, 
it's a big it's a big question that I've thought about a tremendous amount because I was basically a full time manager for six years, you know, until a couple of years ago. So, uh, you know, most of my job was just coordination work, you know, people management relationships, um, not exclusively, but it, it, it was the dominant experience. And I really liked my job. Um, and so I think in contrast, to a lot of the folks that I talk to and I have a consistent experience with yours, like a lot of people don't like those jobs. Um, and I do think that. Uh, I think of management as a really profoundly deep discipline that is not one that is well understood. Um, it's not, there's a lot of great management books, actually. A lot of the best books I've read on management have the most atrocious business bookie covers that would <laughs> repulse me in, in most other contexts. So there's, there's wisdom there, but um, I do think that there is, uh, if you just contrast that with engineering, for example, as like a discipline that is well understood inside of Silicon Valley, right? There's there's a tremendous depth and we understand that there's a tremendous depth and we understand that, that there is like, you know, mastery way beyond, you know, a few years out of college. Um, but I find with management, there tends to be a sense that there's like management basics you learn when you become a new manager, but then there's not necessarily that much more depth that goes beyond your first year or two of becoming a manager. Nice. Um, and I definitely believe that there is a, a potentially infinite depth to that. Um, and it relates to, I think, the, the aspect you mentioned before of like you've moved away from looking for these typed systems and you've, you're looking more and more at like the local like the hyper specific the you know the the very um i think of it as a very thick the thick context of a situation mm -hmm. right that incorporates like all of these local factors like if you're looking at a work situation you're looking at two people disagreeing yes they're disagreeing about a work conversation but they're also trapped in a psychic prison like you mentioned and you know there's all these different ways to look at it um there's people looking at some, if you're, as a, if you're a manager, you're looking at somebody like, you know, they have a career, but they're also like a personality, but they're also a producer of output. Um, and I always want to keep saying yes to all these ways of looking at it and just keep piling on the complexity of, you know, the, the real world um, and keep wanting to keep mastering like these new right. ways of, of, of looking at it all. Um, and, and not just looking at it all through all these lenses, but also trying to align them all. Right. So you know, an organization, you, you know, you, the psychic prison term, we're, we're implicitly referencing images of organization, yeah. I assume. Yeah. And so if you, if you think of, that, of a horrible cover image. <laughs> yeah, right. And with an amazing uh, uh, book inside. Um, and so if you think about the role of an or like, like the, a successful organization needs to succeed in all these different ways, right? It needs to succeed as a financial instrument for investors. It needs to succeed as a meaning maker for its employees. It needs to serve as a, you know, as to compensate people. Um, it has to adhere to all these different domains of, of evaluation. Um, I always think that personally, as, as uh, in my work, I always get excitement out of inviting more and more and more of those onto the, onto mm -hmm. the table mm -hmm. and looking for how they need to be kind of, I think it was like a Rubik's cube or something, you'd like rotate them all in a way where like you can create something right. that, that somehow satisfies them all, right? Yeah. Um, and so in management, I am really excited to kind of go as far as people want to go um, into what it could mean to have a manager in terms of, you know, the blurring the lines into therapy, blurring the lines into, you know, um, uh, spirituality, you know, um, but, uh, like I said before, I think there's like a big consent issue with like taking people there. Um, so um, I think it's a, it has a dramatic effect on the work that people do. Um, and so I think it has to be in bounds if you're serious about doing really good work, but 
uh, yeah, there, I think there does need to be a, um, that consent perspective mm -hmm. as well. So, um, it's a, it's a delicate balance in terms of, I feel very strongly that there's a tremendous amount of depth, but I'm very hesitant to advance the cause beyond my yeah. own, yeah. you know, direct relationships. Right. And also managers self-understanding to know where they can't help. Right. I mean, I think yeah. you're yeah. making me, you're making me appreciate that when I'm describing my miserable friends, you know, and, and if you're a miserable friend who's listening, not you, but like, you know, maybe implicitly there is an inability or an unwillingness to go into certain arenas that, you know, a truly sort of ideal working relationship would be able to do, but, you know, what infrastructure would be helpful and necessary for a manager to be able to be like, here are my limits, right? Yeah. It's not, that's not anything actually that I've, I, it, that, that feels very new and fresh to my ear of a manager being like, look, I want you to be successful. I want you to be happy. I want you to know that like, I don't feel super well equipped to, I, I'm the one who's not getting yeah. consent, right? Like, right, right, right. Uh, it, like that, that feels interesting. I, I, we can, we can leave it there, but uh, yeah, just. I have, just one, I have one more thought on that, yeah, yeah. Um, which is in the context of Enneagram applied to work, there's a lot of people who, professional coaches who work there and, you know, books and stuff like that. Um, one pattern that I've seen is managers telling their reports, their type, and just sending them like a, here's a basic description of, of the type that I identify with that. And I agree with this description and it's not here are my weaknesses and here's where I'm going to be a terrible manager for you. It's like, mm -hmm. here's where I'm going to be maybe taken aback by something or here's where I'm going to need like space yeah. or here's where I'm going to, you know. Um, and, uh, when I've worked with people who get Enneagram, uh, I have found that, that kind of disclosure, uh, to be productive in that way. Um, and, and it does limit the relationship somewhat, but I think it also clarifies the ways in which it's open to. Yeah, it's, it's a really good call. I, I haven't worked with someone who's done exactly that, but many, many people I've worked with have at some point had to basically been forced to like issue a memo of like, here's my API, like, yeah, how to work with me how to work with me. And um, it's interesting that that by and large is crisis driven and not like upfront. Right. Right. Uh, and right. it would be so much cleaner if it was like part of the normal getting to know you package. You know, it also gives a little bit of a hint toward the report of like, Hey, this is invited, right? Like it's, yeah. it's a good way of like extending something. It's purely giving information, which is rare that a manager gets to just be like here. Yep. And, uh, and it also doesn't require anything back. But it, yeah, that's that's a nice that's a nice like move. Um, I'd love to talk about the game you're prototyping. Sure. Do you, do you go ahead. You want me to give an overview? Please. So, I I was never know where to start. Uh, when I was eleven or twelve, I played uh, the Star Wars equivalent of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I was not a DM. I was not you know good enough to run my own games, but. I loved playing it. I had a great DM who didn't really care that we'd not, not, we didn't always know the rules. Um, and ever since then, I've wanted to, I've like chased that feeling with my own children, right? I've wanted to kind of replicate that, that type of play experience with them. Um, but I've never actually learned any of those systems, the you know, like Dungeons and Dragons or, or equivalent systems. Um, and I don't, I don't savor the role of dungeon master. I don't like the idea of having to plan things and uh, create a whole long elaborate adventure for people to go on. I'd prefer to just open up a box and start playing something and not have to like read a bunch of rules first. You know, I like games that people can learn very fast, uh, almost like 
learning as you play is my ideal when I'm trying to design a game. Um, it's just like the, I think of the standard as like when people are like drunk and they want to play a game, but they have like zero interest in learning the rules. Like, yeah. can you make a game that's simple enough that you can teach it to them and, and they'll have a good time, you know, while, while a little buzzed. Um, uh, not that my children are, are in that state, but uh, that's the kind of, I want, I always want games where like you, the, the pitch rolls right into playing, rolls right into being excited to keep playing. Right. Um, and, uh, and so I've, uh, I've taken many stabs at trying to re replicate my memories of playing a role-playing game with my children in a way that they'll kind of roll right into it and get really excited about it. Um, and they're nine and five, right? So they're not, they're not, they're not going to be excited about rolling dice and doing math. Um, but uh, this most recent stab at a game like this uh, is maybe like the seventh or eighth iteration in this genre. Um, and the major idea that I'm really excited about is that I found three by five index cards that are whiteboard material. Um, uh, and so they're as small as index cards and uh, they're really cheap. I can, you can buy like dozens of them. Um, so they're not prohibitively expensive. They work with whiteboard markers. Um, and they race well on everything. And the, the premise is that you are going to uh, draw cards that have labels on them. And then you have to like draw the drawing to like associate with the label. So if you imagine a RPG character, you might have a weapon and a potion mm -hmm. and a pet, say. Let's say you draw three cards and they say weapon, potion, and pet. Then to create your character, you would just draw those things onto those cards. Like the kids would draw their character by just filling in the blanks of those cards. Right. Um, and then there's like a die associated, like, you know, just any dice you can find in the house or you can pick and assign one to each of those cards. Um, and then we tell a story and when you want, you want to use, you know, something on those cards, you have to roll the die. And then it's up to me to decide how the die corresponds to an outcome. And because they can pick any dice in the house, that means that they can pick all sorts of weird things <laughs> that have like wild symbols that are irrelevant to the game yeah. we're playing. Um, but that's kind of the fun interpretive act is to kind of like look at the die and Think about the item and then kind of imagine how it would fit the story so there's not much structure beyond that um and uh and so the idea is that you can kind of like keep erasing and redrawing drawings as like you have a sword but then you break the sword and so you erase mm -hmm. the sword and redraw it broken we just erase part of it um so the drawings are also living representations mm -hmm. of like the game state right so they're kind of like the character sheet that are constantly portraying the current state of of the character um and so it, it taps into like they're drawing, they're, they're kind of responding to prompts as opposed to having to like work through kind of blank slate. Here's like a book of like 14 races and like, you know, 18 yeah. classes, you know, um, this is just like you draw three or four cards, you start drawing on those cards, you know, immediately. Um, I'm doing a similar thing where I'm drawing rooms, you know, and uh, on cards. And so we're just like from the get go, we're playing, we're creating. Um, and then there's just this total openness, like anything can happen, but it's still constrained by these cards and these die rolls in a way that um, kind of still makes there, there's a, there's still the thrill of the die roll where you get to kind of cast yeah. the dice and kind of get excited yeah. to see what the outcome is. Right. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was super, I think the first thing that caught my eye when you tweeted about it was just the materials. So first of all, yeah. three by five index cards that are what, like, did you just discover that? Or is that something that you've known about for? A while. Well, I was prototyping with post-its before that because that felt like a really like I would love the idea that you can just grab any material around the house and start yeah. playing this. Um, and so I really wanted to believe that post-its were the answer to this. Um, but when you want to erase a drawing like on a post-it, it's just a huge pain to take a pencil eraser and kind of like scrub on it and hope that you, you know, the combination of the pencil and the eraser and the paper are gonna like forgive that, right? 
And so I noticed whenever we were playing with the post-its, there was a temptation to like X out an enemy or like if the sword broke to try to draw that on there, mm. like the kids always wanted to like redraw everything. Mm. But when you're working with pencil or working with pen on just a post-it, you can never update the kind of drawing to match what was going on. And so we tried things on bigger whiteboards and like we tried chalk um, to kind of try to play with how drawings could kind of show the current state. Um, but huge whiteboards are kind of cumbersome and not really a fun play surface. Um, and so I was like, okay, man, what, what somebody should invent is like post-its that are whiteboard material. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait, somebody probably did invent <laughs> roughly that. And so I just went on Amazon and typed whiteboard index cards and there was a bunch. And I was like really excited to discover this awesome. product existed. And then I had a label maker laying around the house and I realized that would be perfect for, um, you know, putting on the, the prompts onto, directly onto the cards and the aesthetic so, of the label. So what's an example so of a label that you print? Is that like weapon? Or is it? Yeah. Okay. So if you imagine an index card on the top, it says weapon. Right. And on the bottom, there's like a little square for where a dice, a die can go. Right. Um, and they just fill in the drawing in between. And so there's weapon or potion or pet or skill or secret or, you know, you can keep coming up with these categories that form the characters. Quick uh, detour. So I just bought my very first label maker maybe a month ago. And um, I had like, I think fatherhood for me so far in month seven has been like a series of overall, like incredibly like positive feeling and richness and like happiness um, punctuated by like crises and breakdowns at like varying levels of yeah. intensity. Like my first one is a doozy at like week three or something like that. Um, since then they're like very subtle so far, but like, I had, I had a really interesting break breakdown. I'm saying like a little bit flippantly, right? Like not like yep. not huddle on the floor crying. That was like my first one, but like things that maybe I don't even recognize as a breakdown, but like a decision to, to reorganize my bathroom. Right. So right. I like, I just am never moved by these things historically, but like, I was like, I'm going to re and it didn't come from a, I'm sure somewhere in there, there was like a sense of like, I don't control anything anymore. So it let yeah. me at least control this bathroom, but it didn't feel that yeah. like, it didn't have that much heat. It really felt like I've got an idea and I really don't like all the visual noise anywhere, but especially not the bathroom where it's like a Garnier fruit teeth bottle with it's like nasty green color and it's like text yeah. everywhere. So, you know, I just basically got very plain bottles and then a label maker where it's like shampoo and soap and stuff like that and extremely happy with it. And now my bathroom is like a joy and I'm just not that kind of person. So um, yeah. the label maker has been, uh, has been great. And, uh, there's, there's something, there's something so joyous about the process of making labels. Like I had that little scissors at the end. Yep. Snip, yep. It's, just, it's just really, uh, like magnificent. It is. Yeah. There's a lot of great tactile experiences all along the path there. Um, but I want to ask about the DMing thing too. So like you're, you're now, you're now DMing and you said like you, you traditionally haven't had any interest in that it kind of seems like this feels almost harder to DM because maybe, maybe you're really like almost clean slate DMing. So is that, is that better because of your audience is your kids as opposed to like drunk friends or have you also kind of found constraints in ways to make the DMing experience like more pleasant? Yeah. So the DMing experience is something I'm still working on most now um, relative to the play side. And uh, it, so far it works in a similar way where like I'll draw cards and they'll have prompts on them. So mm -hmm. if you imagine a kind of classic dungeon uh, type adventure where you kind of descend through a dungeon and 
beat a boss and get some treasure as a kind of archetypal one to work with. Um, I might draw a card that says like, you know, uh, obstacle, or I might draw a card that says, you know, uh, enemy or a card that says mini boss or something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I'm also kind of responding to prompts in a, in a way that makes it easier for me to generate a world as opposed to the, the kind of blank canvas side of it. Um, but I am also playing with GPT-3 as a way to kind of further offload my responsibility to come up with something creative. Yeah. Um, so you can imagine feeding GPT-3 something like, oh, this is the story of an adventure where they, you know, overcame blank. And then GPT-3 gives me a, something to fill in the blank. And then I have to draw that onto the card or something That's like right. that um, to even further depressurize. Then you asked about the kind of, I think the play experience of like, how do you adjudicate a, such a free form thing? Isn't that like more stressful, right? Um, and it, my kids are so young that I think they just, they love it. They love for it to just get weird and wild. Like they're not, yeah. they're not the kind of people to be like, wait a minute, you <laughs> said that swords only do, you know, they're not going right. to rule lawyer, you know, they're still playful <laughs> enough and joyous enough that like yeah. they, they'd much rather have a kind of like sloppy mess than, um, you know, something that's clear and consistent. So um, there, there's, there's just such a low standard for what it means to, to, you know, um, respond to, you know, a, a die roll in a way that's, you know, yeah. systematic or something like that. Um, I, I have kind of like, I think this is, I think this is a real question, but it's, I'm going to just blunder my way through it and then we'll see if it makes any sense. Like, so you remember that, um, I mean, the, Mad, the Wizards of the Coast people had one of these things, but there's also another paper that has like player types. And so the one that I'm thinking of has like um, killers and explorers mm -hmm. and achievers and socializers yeah. I think is that matrix yeah um the playing card scheme that often gets it's like invoked in mmo contexts like hearts clubs yeah right spades exactly, and diamonds. Exactly. Yeah. yeah um and i found that to be like an incredibly meaningful paper and i oftentimes apply it to things like wikipedia i think wikipedia yep. i think about wikipedia like once a week and i'm like why was that so successful and yeah. one of my theories is actually it was like an incredibly well designed game because You've got, you know, the editors and the creators and the chatters and the tagger, like Absolutely. no matter what your like quirk is, like there's something for you to just go deep on it. Um, and then I've only played Dungeons and Dragons. I've had like part of a campaign that I was invited to um, and it was fun to see my friends. And uh, there, I think there was a lot of like mechanics. And so like, I would hang out with them for like two and a half hours and that would be like plenty, that would be like mostly this skirmish with orcs. Yeah. And uh, I was like, okay, I'm not really wired that way. Like I, the, right. I don't have a lust for battle mechanics. Right. Um, um, I'm more like, I like, I like Knights of the Old Republic, the alignment stuff. Like mm -hmm. I would love, I would love having like a lot of time in my player bio and then being faced like with really tough decisions of like, is this really what my character would do? Like, yeah, I, I want to free the town, but maybe I have to like roll a dice or like, I, I like the, I like the conflict of sort of like, this is my alignment. And then I'm faced with a difficult choice. Um, yeah. So that I, I'm not saying this fits perfectly into that. Uh, I actually think it doesn't fit at all. The point just being that like, we all have our own proclivities. Like, do you think in a game, you know, as you're designing this game from scratch and, it, and it's like very generative and has cards, like, do you think such a game itself could even incorporate all player types such that like the battle mechanics person is happy and the character personality person is happy and the lower world builder is happy? Or do you actually think it's kind of the responsibility of 
a game, at least call it like a D&D style game of just be like, say, hey, like I'm planting my flag here. I'm story driven. I'm mechanics driven. And like, hopefully you're cool with that. If not, don't play. Yeah, no, that's uh, uh, that's a great question. I think like in, th- in this particular case, I am like really trying to make a game for me, my son and my daughter, like and these three people yeah. um, who live in this house with like this context. Uh, and that's very freeing for this this project to kind of just go like, I just need to meet the needs of these three people and nothing else compared to working on a product with has like hundreds of millions of users or something, right? Um, so with this most recent project, uh, it's been very, uh, you know, local in that way um, in terms of like not thinking too far or too abstractly about like how this, uh, this could, could work. But I have found already that there's sort of a, that's, that's being forced in some ways where there are like if you just even with three people, that's enough to already start to reveal differences in how people want to spend their time um, playing. Um, and I, it is already too scoped towards like a game where you are you are on an adventure and there's challenges and there's enemies. Like even the idea of having a weapon, right? Like it's just like there's an assumption of a weapon. Um, but I think I want to keep basically creating card categories such that like the genres and things can just sort of like totally open up into. Uh, to being lots of different, uh, to support lots of different things. And I think one of the big limits I'm not sure I can break out of without just doing something new, but I'm, I'm interested in is doing things where you don't play as a character that you control. Like just mm-hmm. even having an avatar in a world is, that's already a very thoroughly explored space in a lot of these RPGs. And there's, yeah. I'm interested in RPGs where you play as like a group of people or you play as like, you know, maybe you play as the weather Right. Or maybe you, you know, like I want to, I want to, yeah, yeah. I've been dissatisfied with the mold of having to always think of ourselves as a band of adventurers. Right. Yeah. That's cool. I love that. Um, I also think about the environments where I play D and D and it's like, uh, you know, in my particular group, the wives don't really necessarily want to play. Yeah. So they're in another room where they don't come at all. And like, right. but what would it look like to include them in a way that I'm not saying like they have to have fun, but like when you said the weather, I'm like, yeah, I think I could like, convince yeah. my partner to like come through every once in a while and like blow and be like, it's windy or, you know, like, like, <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, yeah. I, I've gotten obsessed, uh, sorry, obsessed is the ex- exact wrong word. I've gotten ensnared by, um, an iPhone game. So I haven't played free to play games in a long time. And I just got lost in Marvel strike force. Um, not. I mean, don't play it. it it's, it's like a generic free to play game, but just the, the state of the art and the mechanics is incredible. Uh, and just in terms of like, their methods of addiction. And one of the things that they do so well is there's a mode for every availability I have. So if I'm going to play for 15 minutes, which for me is oh, a lot, yeah. like right. I can do campaign mode and like advance the plot. Um, yeah. If I'm in like uh, the bathroom, um, I can like do a couple of blitz things and set on autoplay, right? And so instead yeah. of choosing each character's actions, I do autoplay. Um, and then there's simulate where they won't even go into the battlefield. It, it'll just sort of run the numbers. Yeah. And so, and there might even be two or three other modes. And so they've just, they've completely opened up the game where like, no matter what my, I mean, I can be, I could be talking to you right now and like be simulating right on the side. And I can totally see the path where someone who gets really addicted would be doing that. Right. Because it's like, yep. I can actually fill up every crack in my life with this game in, in some way. So, I mean, there's kind of a nefarious part to that, uh, but clearly like game designers are thinking about this more and more. Whereas like, I think a free to play game 
10 years ago, I'm sure this is like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have my fingers on the pulse of this stuff, but like Farmville probably had a pretty primitive version of that where um, you, yeah. you couldn't necessarily fill up every moment in your life. Yeah. And I actually think there are a lot of uh, outside of free to play. I think there's lots of great examples of that being a really wonderful experience. Uh, some things that come to mind are, this is maybe slightly different, but I think it's, there's, there's a relationship. Um, have you played everything by David O'Reilly? I haven't. Yeah. So it's like one of the things that made it stood out to me is that if you put the controller down, this is a game where you can control everything is the, the scheme. So let's say you start as a cow and then you can kind of transfer your control into a tree and then you can transfer that control into a mountain and then I'll control it the planet. You can go the other way where you can kind of increasingly control small things. And so the idea is kind of like a interactive powers of 10 type experience. Right. Um, but the basic conceit is amazing, but then what I really was uh, struck by is if you put the controller down, the game will just take control for you mm. and start to play the game for you. Um, mm. And it's close enough to you playing it that it's actually like a really amazing alternative to playing it where you can just sit on the couch and watch it. And, you know, it's like, it's a very, you know, it's psychedelic imagery and there's like literally Alan Watts quotes littered throughout the yeah. game. And so it's yeah. a, there's a very natural, you know, context for just sort of like letting the vibe of the game wash over you. Um, but that, that feeling of like, I can reach in and take as much control or as little control as I want. Um, Rainbow Six is another game. I don't know if you've oh, yeah, Rainbow, Rainbow Six, Six games. Yeah. I really love just like plotting out a mission and right. then just hitting play and just letting right. the AI do everything for me. Yeah. But then sometimes I like to take control over a character and, and be might be in there myself, but I like that ability to kind of slide in and out of like the levels of abstraction of the of the world you know i totally remember that uh i, I think it might have been the first rainbow six game also had that mode um and just being like so struck by the ability to like be the technical yeah. <laughs> person and like you didn't have to play the game um on the other hand you could like kind of skip the plan a little bit and just sort of like gun in there so um we're coming up on the hour i, I did want to ask you something though oh actually i wanted to inform you something um did you ever did you ever play that little ios game that i created called pablo there was like one line drawings yeah i did just makes me remember that that game also had this mode which was i thought it was so interesting and I, the game like i needed more like time yeah. into it so it was like badly executed but you know it, it was a game where you had one line drawings so you press your finger on the screen you draw something and as soon as you release it it uploads so there's no like done button it's just releasing your finger sends it to the um, feed but then it had this other mode of infinite drawing where it basically connected everybody's drawing so it was a, yes. a single constant one-line viewing experience and it's just yeah i was like so struck by those pivots on the data you know it's yeah it's a good point yeah. like it doesn't have to be um I guess for me, what that moment represented was sort of this connectivity yeah. between members that was completely surprising, right? It wasn't like I follow you or you follow me or I like your thing or you yeah. like my thing. It was connectivity through this completely like alien generation. And uh, I, I like the idea of that uh, independent of however it was executed. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, I'm also not on a time timeline, so. Oh, okay, cool. Well, I... I uh, I've got um, baby duties in a minute. Um, how old are your kids again? Nine and five. Nine and five. And do you find like the, like, is it just super fun to like play a game with them? And you've got like these two players who have like completely different worldviews. Like, 
I don't know what, like, just, is it, do you, what do you notice when you're playing with, with them? Yeah, I think, uh, especially lately, there's, there's a greater divergence between like how they approach games. My son is increasingly playing Fortnite with his like friends. And so competition is like becoming more front and center in his experience. I think he, he grew up on Minecraft and, uh, and Roblox and a lot of open-ended non-challenge based non-competition based games which i think is beautiful that's an option relative to our childhoods where most games were brutal challenges or highly competitive um and only now as he kind of gets into his nine turning 10 soon you know you start to shift into a different kind of like approach puberty um you know uh uh, you start to get, I think competition starts to motivate more. And I think like, you know, uh, teasing and like, you know, prodding each other a bit, you know, um, can, can also kind of is coming more naturally to him. Um, whereas before they were a bit closer in terms of like, not, he's not quite old enough to be jocular. So that's been a new phenomenon I've had to, to grapple mm-hmm. with, um, was, uh, his, his interest in being increasingly jocular and she's still, you know, young. Yeah. Um, but, uh, that is, it is the kind of background for a lot of the the design choices where he can handle math, but she's too young to handle math. So how do you kind of strip out the math from an RPG, right? So there is a kind of constant balancing of like, what's going to work for all of them. A lot of times a game is fun for two of the three of us, but it's very rare to find something that's fun for all three. Yeah. It's in, you're making me, first of all, you made me think of Counter-Strike in my own childhood yeah. as sort of this, like, did you play it all? Yeah, huge. That was it's one of the the biggest games of of my life. I would say. What's your relationship to Counter Strike now in terms of like from that? You know, that's a part of who I am, and it was an interesting phase to like uh, curse the day that I played that game. To I don't know to maybe another endpoint of like I made a lot of great friends and I uh, developed great hand eye control. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I did make a lot of great friends. It was a, a really important uh, environment for a lot of my relationships, both in the real world and also kind of a you know burgeoning internet identity relationships. Um, and I look back on those times like very fondly. Um, and I I wish that I had the space to take a game as seriously as I did when I was playing that game. Um, I played StarCraft II, I think, that seriously, and that was like right before my son was born. Um, but just ever since having kids, there's not really, I haven't found a context for deciding to get good at something like really seriously and just driving to get really good at it. Um, but with a friend, with a set of friends who you have to learn how to coordinate with, there's not a greater high for me than you and a few really close friends completely like nailing, you know, the execution of like a, of a plan in a, in a game like that. Um, and I think my sense is that, that that experience is mostly found now through Fortnite and battle, you know, battle royale games where you kind of are forced into this like coordinated squad. Um, but they don't, they don't scratch the itch for me in the same way. You're making your, thank you because you're, you're, you've moved my feelings of Counter-Strike a little bit. Like it, it sounds like to me, like, so I have a very negative relationship with Counter-Strike. I played it not as much as my friends, but my friends who played it more, I was like, ugh, and it's just so repetitive. It, it just had this mindless grinding quality of like, I don't know the map that well. And I will pretty consistently kill the people who know the map less well than me and be killed by the people who know it better than me. And then I might get killed right away. And then I'll like, I'm going to play again, or I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll have to pass to my friend. And, uh, you know, teabagging. I remember 
yeah. teabagging a lot and spraying the graffiti. And uh, so I just, I just, it, it stressed me out. It felt very like linear and repetitive and grindy. Totally. And it, you know, it was, it was involving murder and terrorism, but I think the, the part that I never got to and my friend group never got to, but I can imagine being quite powerful is the coordination and the strategy. And, yeah. and it's interesting to think about how games might pull that out earlier. I, I don't know, for instance, Fortnite, maybe my mental model is like, I'm, I'm imagining my head like this flow, onboarding flow of Counter-Strike and like being a somewhat badly designed game. Like many people got lost in the place yeah. that I'm at. Yeah. Um, and what it might look like if a game is better at that, such that like coordination is kind of a must have from, the beginning and the grindy thing gets like so boring or so just like not worthwhile fast enough that you end up having to sort of develop the teamwork and coordination sooner. I mean, maybe Fortnite's already doing that. I don't know. Yeah. I do think that's let's lace through the dynamics of battle royale in a way that makes it pretty well suited. Um, like the pacing, I don't, have you played any of these games? Mm -mm. So I think one thing to, to distinguish it from Counter-Strike is the, the, ma the matches are much longer, uh, assuming that you, you live beyond a kind of average length. Um, and the pace is very slow and you're very like, you're, it's rare that you encounter other people. And then it's like, then the odds of you encountering other people kind of like ramp up and up and up as the kind of match closes because the, the circle is closing in on you and it's all forcing you towards one common point, right? Oh, interesting. And so the natural rhythm in a friendship, what makes it really, I think, such a great fit for friendship is there's like this downtime where you can just bullshit on, you know, the audio call and just catch up and mm -hmm. gossip and do whatever. Um, and, uh, and kind of be relatively silly, but then sort of the, the game sort of forces tension on you progressively over time. And then you kind of get into a focus mode and you get to kind of take the coordination more seriously. And then it kind of like, you get really engaged and then there's mm -hmm. like a big pop, either you win or you lose. Mm -hmm. And then there's a, you know, kind of like a, you know, you wash and then you kind of go back in and it's, then it's 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 chill again right you're not carrying yeah, the stress because right, now you're right, back right. into a kind of a downtime mode um and so that rhythm i think has been part of what makes those games so captivating it's such a good uh way to express friendship whether you there's like this downtime where you can relax but then you can also display the coordination of like really you know if you want to you know go down that um but i know that a lot of a lot of, i've played with younger players and teenagers and stuff and a lot of times they won't they'll completely ignore the primary objective and just kind of go explore or talk or whatever. And so there is a degradation of how much you kind of need to care. Whereas Counter-Strike is, I think, brutal if you're not if you're not interested in improving yeah. as a team. Sounds like that's a game that perfectly embodies these four suits of players. It sounds like there's socializers. The, the end of that paper I find particularly interesting because it talks about stable dynamics. Because one of, yeah. the, one of the ways that like the information will flow, if not checked, is everyone becomes a socializer. So it, it sort of starts, right, right. there's an aspect of that, right? Where it's like, whatever it is, it becomes the water cooler. Um, so how do you ensure that there are just enough achievers, killers and world builders or explorers to kind of keep that um, happening? And I can imagine this, this um, I'm trying to describe what I'm doing with my hands, like a shrinking of the world space, kind of keeping yes. the socializers in check and also maybe not, right? Like there, you can still socialize, if you, but then you're sort of like out of the game a little bit, so. Yep. Um, I want to I want to close with a question for you that that I don't even know if it if it's a question but when you're describing Counter Strike it kind of came into my head is Counter Strike the opposite of cards and then so the question is like what is the opposite of cards cards is such like a rich paradigm for me that has all sorts of meaning like what is there is there an opposite that comes to my mind or your mind of like what is the antithesis of that 
Yeah, I mean, Counter-Strike immediately bounces off of me as like the right the right selection there, particularly contemporary Counter-Strike, where a very significant amount of what happens in that game is the gun economy, like the skin economy, mm. where like a large part of what you're doing is like opening packs of like, you know, random assortments of like high to low value things and like trading them and everything like that. So they've they've folded in increasingly card-like qualities into Counter-Strike over time yeah. um, in recognition of like kind of the, the power of cards. Um, I think part of me wants to start to taxonomize like the qualities of cards, right? What makes cards card-like and then start to carve off like what is its, what is its opposite? Um, but I don't want to stretch this out. That's probably another one hour call to sort of fully unpack like the full <laughs> import of, of the card. Yeah. Um, I mean, worlds, worlds are not cards. So like, again, I haven't played Minecraft, but that feels uncard-like. Yeah, that, in, in a, I think a, that does feel safely uncard-like. It doesn't feel like the polar opposite. It does feel like maybe there's some nodes where like there, there's clearly gotta be something very linear that is also not card-like. Yeah, I think if we're gonna, if we're staying within the realm of games as, as the kind of analogy, I think if you think of maybe like a last of us or something like that and uncharted mm -hmm. like these like hyper linear roller coaster games where you know exactly what you're going to get there's never surprises <laughs> there's like everyone gets the same experience um i think that homogeneity and the absence of surprise uh zero scarcity no specialness you know mm -hmm. to be found anywhere mm -hmm. um that all feels very like anti-card to me and yeah. I can't, I can't get into those games at all. And I, I think there's a, there's a relationship there. So maybe, maybe we'll try to, I, I don't want to prematurely create a taxonomy. I agree. I, this is, this is not the place and the time for that, but like, and I also don't know how fun this is as an exercise. Like it doesn't, it doesn't currently like spark much for me, but like you can kind of imagine like there's completely open world, infinite exploration. We'll never know what you're doing here. I'm, yeah, I'm kind of sticking with games, but you can imagine interfaces that are world-like too. Yeah. Uh, where like a decision tree or forking paths is meaningless um, because the, like you wouldn't be able to create so many paths. And then there's like a linear, which is like one path. And then cards, which is interesting is like, they maybe are the best interface for forking paths that are like yeah. incredibly rich and fertile. And at the same time, finite or if not finite like sort of uh like not unboundedly infinite like the small kind of infinite um yeah and that 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 really gets so much excitement around completion right or like having walked all the paths uh yep. knowing the path so it sort of sits between these and like in a way that also feels very fertile it's not just between them but it also sort of does things for you yeah i think that that's a that's a fantastic point that i didn't uh, i didn't appreciate until you walked through it there is like the the card is kind of also a promise of encapsulation, right? Mm -hmm. um, and but then there's the reconfigurability of them that allows them to kind of support a, a shockingly high amount of uh, complexity, while still also also kind of staying within the realm of of the card as this one governing paradigm for the structure of everything. And that that diversity of what cards can do is probably displayed on just like looking at the tremendous amount of games that are created with cards, especially this most recent wave of reinterest in cards. Like, have you played mm -hmm. Slay the Spire? No. Yeah, I think, you know, people are, I think are, are it, it's interesting to see how people bring the card metaphor into software 
where they uh, there's no need to to be bound by the laws of physics of cards, and yet there's a value to invoking right. the card metaphor, right? Um, so there's definitely, I think, a, a reinterest in in that. Hmm. Um, David, thank you for coming on the broadcast. It was a it was a treat. Thank you. It was really fun. We'll have you on a future episode where you can um, demo the the game uh, that you're prototyping now. And uh, do you have any do you have any interest in doing that? Or are you are you like like how much are how much are you thinking? Truly, this is just for me and my kids. And then, how much are you like? Mm, like can I can already imagine the box art. Yeah, I think it's if it's not fun with the kids, it's uh, there's no interest in going more general than that, you know. Um, but if it is really fun with the kids and it sticks, it seems yeah. like it would be hard to not, you know, spread or, or share with people. Yes. So I think it's, you know, it's them first and then we'll see where it goes from there. Cool. Well, sign me up for a playtest. Cool. Thanks for coming. Nice.